0: The Autobiography of an ex colored Man, by James Weldon Johnson. Chapter 1 I know that in writing the following pages I am divulging the great secret of my life, the secret which for some years I have guarded far more carefully than any of my earthly possessions. And it is a curious study to me to analyze the motives which prompt me to do it. I feel that I am led by the same impulse which forces the unfound-out criminal to take somebody into his confidence, although he knows that the act is liable, even almost certain to lead to his undoing. I know that I am playing with fire, and I feel the thrill which accompanies that most fascinating pastime. And, back of it all, I think I find a sort of savage and diabolical desire to gather up all the little tragedies of my life, and turn them into a practical joke on society. And, too, I suffer a vague feeling of unsatisfaction, of regret, of almost remorse, from which I am seeking relief, and of which I shall speak in the last paragraph of this account. I was born in a little town of Georgia a few years after the close of the Civil War. I shall not mention the name of the town, because there are still many people living there who could be connected with this narrative. I have only a faint recollection of the place of my birth. At times I can close my eyes and call up in a dreamlike way things that seem to have happened ages ago in some other world. I can see in this half-vision a little house. I am quite sure it was not a large one. I can remember that flowers grew in the front yard and that around each bed of flowers was a hedge of coloured glass bottles stuck in the ground, neck down. I remember that once, while playing around in the sand, I became curious to know whether or not the bottles grew as the flowers did, and I proceeded to dig them out to find out. The investigation brought me a terrific spanking, which indelibly fixed the incident in my mind. I can remember, too, that behind the house was a shed under which stood two or three wooden wash tubs. These tubs were the earliest aversion of my life, for regularly, on certain evenings, I was plunged into one of them and scrubbed until my skin ached. I can remember to this day the pain caused by the strong, rank soap getting into my eyes. Back from the house, a vegetable garden ran, perhaps 75 or 100 feet, but to my childish fancy it was an endless territory. I can still recall the thrill of joy Excitement and wonder it gave me to go on an exploring expedition through it to find blackberries, both ripe and green, that grew along the edge of the fence. I remember with what pleasure I used to arrive at and stand before a little enclosure in which stood a patient cow chewing her cud, how I would occasionally offer her, through the bars, a piece of my bread and molasses, and how I would jerk back my hand in half fright. "'if she made any motion to accept my offer. "'I have a dim recollection of several people "'who moved in and about this little house, "'but I have a distinct mental image of only two. "'One, my mother, "'and the other a tall man with a small, dark mustache. "'I remember that his shoes or boots were always shiny "'and that he wore a gold chain and a great gold watch, "'with which he was always willing to let me play.' My admiration was almost equally divided between the watch and chain and the shoes. He used to come to the house evenings, perhaps two or three times a week, and it became my appointed duty, whenever he came, to bring him a pair of slippers and to put the shiny shoes in a particular corner. He often gave me in return for this service a bright coin, which my mother taught me to promptly drop in a little tin bank." I remember distinctly the last time this tall man came to the little house in Georgia. That evening, before I went to bed, he took me up in his arms and squeezed me very tightly. My mother stood behind his chair, wiping tears from her eyes. I remember how I sat upon his knee and watched him laboriously drill a hole through a ten-dollar gold piece and then tie the coin around my neck with a string.' I have worn that gold piece around my neck the greater part of my life and still possess it. But more than once I have wished that some other way had been found of attaching it to me besides putting a hole through it. On the day after the coin was put around my neck, my mother and I started on what seemed to me an endless journey. I knelt on the seat and watched through the train window the corn and cotton fields pass swiftly by until I fell asleep. When I fully awoke, we were being driven through the streets of a large city, Savannah. I sat up and blinked at the bright lights. At Savannah, we boarded a steamer which finally landed us in New York. From New York, we went to a town in Connecticut, which became the home of my boyhood. My mother and I lived together in a little cottage which seemed to me to be fitted up almost luxuriously. There were horsehair covered chairs in the parlor and the little square piano. There was a stairway with red carpet on it leading to a half-second story. There were pictures on the walls and a few books in a glass-doored case. My mother dressed me very neatly, and I developed that pride which well-dressed boys generally have. She was careful about my associates, and I myself was quite particular. As I look back now, I can see that I was a perfect little aristocrat. My mother rarely went to anyone's house, but she did sewing, and there were a great many ladies coming to our cottage. If I were around, they would generally call me and ask me my name and age and tell my mother what a pretty boy I was. Some of them would pat me on the head and kiss me. My mother was kept very busy with her sewing. Sometimes she would have another woman helping her. I think she must have derived a fair income from her work. I know, too, that at least once each month she received a letter. I used to watch for the postman, get the letter, and run to her with it. Whether she was busy or not, she would take it and instantly thrust it into her bosom. I never saw her read one of them. I knew later that these letters contained money and what was to her more than money. As busy as she generally was, she, however, found time to teach me my letters and figures and how to spell a number of easy words. Always on Sunday evenings, she opened the little piano and picked out hymns. I can recall now that whenever she played hymns from the book, her tempos were always decidedly largo. Sometimes on other evenings when she was not sewing, she would play simple accompaniments to some old southern songs which she sang. In these songs she was freer, because she played them by ear. Those evenings on which she opened the little piano were the happiest hours of my childhood. Whenever she started toward the instrument, I used to follow her with all the interest and irrepressible joy that a pampered pet dog shows when a package is open in which he knows there is a sweet bit for him. I used to stand by her side and often interrupt and annoy her by chiming in with strange harmonies which I found either on the high keys or the treble or low keys of the bass. I remember that I had a particular fondness for the black keys. Always, on such evenings, when the music was over, my mother would sit with me in her arms, often for a very long time. She would hold me close, softly crooning some old melody without words, all the while gently stroking her face against my head. Many and many a night, I thus fell asleep. I can see her now, her great dark eyes looking into the fire. To where? No one knew but she. The memory of that picture has more than once kept me from straying too far from the place of purity and safety in which her arms held me. At a very early age I began to thump on the piano alone, and it was not long before I was able to pick out a few tunes. When I was seven years old I could play by ear all of the hymns and songs that my mother knew. I had also learned the names of the notes in both clefs, but I preferred not to be hampered by notes. About this time, several ladies for whom my mother sewed heard me play, and they persuaded her that I should at once be put under a teacher. So arrangements were made for me to study the piano with a lady who was a fairly good musician. At the same time, arrangements were made for me to study my books with this lady's daughter. My music teacher had no small difficulty at first in pinning me down to the notes. If she played my lesson over for me, I invariably attempted to reproduce the required sounds without the slightest recourse to the written characters. Her daughter, my other teacher, also had her worries. She found that in reading, whenever I came to words that were difficult or unfamiliar, I was prone to bring my imagination to the rescue and read from the picture. She has laughingly told me since then that I would sometimes substitute whole sentences and even paragraphs from what meaning, I thought, the illustrations conveyed. She said she sometimes was not only amused at the fresh treatment I would give an author's subject, but that when I gave some new and sudden turn to the plot of the story, she often grew interested and even excited in listening to hear what kind of denouement I would bring about. But I am sure this was not due to dullness, for I made rapid progress in both my music and my books. And so for a couple of years my life was divided between my music and my school books. Music took up the greater part of my time. I had no playmates, but amused myself with games, some of them of my own invention, which could be played alone. I knew a few boys whom I had met at the church which I attended with my mother, but I had formed no close friendships with any of them. Then, when I was nine years old, my mother decided to enter me into public school. So all at once I found myself thrown among a crowd of boys of all sizes and kinds. Some of them seemed to me like savages. I shall never forget the bewilderment, the pain, the heart sickness of that first day at school. I seemed to be the only stranger in the place. Every other boy seemed to know every other boy. I was fortunate enough, however, to be assigned to a teacher who knew me. My mother made her dresses. She was one of the ladies who used to pat me on the head and kiss me. She had the tact to address a few words directly to me. This gave me a certain sort of standing in the class and put me somewhat at ease. Within a few days I had made one staunch friend, and I was on fairly good terms with most of the boys. I was shy of the girls and remained so. Even now, a word or look from a pretty woman sets me all a-tremble. This friend I bound to me with hooks of steel in a very simple way. He was a big, awkward boy with a face full of freckles and a head full of very red hair. He was perhaps fourteen years of age, that is, four or five years older than any other boy in the class. This seniority was due to the fact that he had spent twice the required amount of time in several of the preceding classes. I had not been at school many hours before I felt that redhead, as I involuntarily called him, and I were to be friends. I do not doubt that this feeling was strengthened by the fact that I had been quick enough to see that a big, strong boy was a friend to be desired at a public school, and perhaps in spite of his dullness, redhead had been able to discern that I could be of service to him. At any rate, there was a simultaneous mutual attraction. The teacher had strung the class promiscuously around the walls of the room for a sort of trial heat for places of rank. When the line was straightened, I found that by skillful maneuvering I had placed myself third, and had piloted Redhead to the place next to me. The teacher began by giving us to spell the words corresponding to our order in line. Spell first, spell second, spell third. I rattle off. T-H-I-R-D, third, in a way which said, Why don't you give us something hard? As the words went down the line, I could see how lucky I had been to get a good place together with an easy word. As young as I was, I felt impressed with the unfairness of the whole proceeding when I saw the trailenders going down before the twelfth and twentieth. And I felt sorry for those who had to spell such words in order to hold a low position. Spell fourth, redhead. With his hands clutched tightly behind his back, began F-O-R-T-H. Like a flash, a score of hands went up, and the teacher began saying, No snapping of fingers, no snapping of fingers. This was the first word missed. And it seemed to me that some of the scholars were about to lose their senses, somewhat dancing up and down on one foot with a hand above their heads, the fingers working furiously, and joy beaming all over their faces. "'Others stood still, their hands raised not so high, "'their fingers working less rapidly, "'and their faces expressing not quite so much happiness. "'There were still others who did not move nor raise their hands, "'but stood with great wrinkles on their foreheads, "'looking very thoughtful. "'The whole thing was new to me, "'and I did not raise my hand, "'but slyly whispered the letter U to Redhead several times. Second chance,' said the teacher.' The hands went down, and the class became quiet. Redhead, his face now red, after looking beseechingly at the ceiling, then pitiably at the floor, began very haltingly, F, U. Immediately an impulse to raise hands went to the class, but the teacher checked it, and poor Redhead, though he knew that each letter he added only took him further out of the way, went dodgedly on and finished R, T, H. The hand-raising was now repeated with more hubbub and excitement than at first. Those who before had not moved a finger were now waving their hands above their heads. Redhead felt that he had lost. He looked very big and foolish, and some of the scholars began to snicker. His helpless condition went straight to my heart and gripped my sympathies. I felt that if he failed, it would in some way be my failure. I raised my hand, and under the cover of excitement and the teacher's attempts to retain order, I hurriedly shut up into his ear twice, quite distinctly. F-O-U-R-T-H. F-O-U-R-T-H. The teacher tapped on her desk and said, Third and last chance. The hands came down. The silence became oppressive redhead began. F. Since that day I have waited anxiously for many a turn of the wheel of fortune, but never under greater tension than I watched for the order in which those letters would fall from red slips. O. U. R. T. H. <sighs> a sigh of relief and disappointment went up from the class. Afterwards, Through all our school days, Redhead shared my wit and quickness, and I benefited by his strength and dogged faithfulness. There were some black and brown boys and girls in the school, and several of them were in my class. One of the boys strongly attracted my attention from the day I saw him. His face was as black as night, but shone as though it was polished, He had sparkling eyes, and when he opened his mouth, he displayed glistening white teeth. It struck me at once as appropriate to call him shiny face, or shiny eyes, or shiny teeth. And I spoke of him often by one of these names to the other boys. These terms were finally merged into shiny. And to that name he answered good-naturedly during the balance of his public school days. Shiny was considered without question to be the best speller, the best reader, the best penman, in a word, the best scholar in the class. He was very quick to catch anything, but nevertheless studied hard. Thus, he possessed two powers very rarely combined in one boy. I saw him year after year, on up into the high school, win the majority of the prizes for punctuality, deportment, essay writing, and declamation. Yet it did not take me long to discover that in spite of his standing as a scholar, he was in some way looked down upon. The other black boys and girls were still more looked down upon. Some of the boys often spoke of them as niggers. Sometimes on the way home from school, a crowd would walk behind him repeating, Nigger, nigger, never die, black face and shiny eye. "'On one such afternoon, one of the black boys turned suddenly on his tormentors "'and hurled a slate. "'It struck one of the white boys in the mouth, cutting a slight gash in his lip. "'At the sight of the blood, the boy who had thrown the slate ran, "'and his companions quickly followed. "'We ran after them, pelting them with stones until they separated in several directions. "'I was very much wrought up over the affair and went home and told my mother "'how one of the niggers has struck a boy with a slate.' I shall never forget how she turned on me. Don't you ever use that word again, she said. And don't you ever bother the colored children at the school. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. I did hang my head in shame, but not because she had convinced me that I had done wrong, but because I was hurt by the first sharp word she had ever given me. My school days ran along very pleasantly. I stood well in my studies, not always so well with regard to my behavior. I was never guilty of any serious misconduct, but my love of fun sometimes got me into trouble. I remember, however, that my sense of humor was so sly that most of the trouble usually fell on the head of another fellow. My ability to play on the piano at school exercises was looked upon as little short of marvelous in a boy of my age. I was not chummy with many of my mates, but on the whole was about as popular as it is good for a boy to be. One day near the end of my second term at school, the principal came into our room, and after talking to the teacher, for some reason said, I wish all of the white scholars to stand for a moment. I rose with the others. The teacher looked at me and, calling my name, said, You sit down for the present and rise with the others. I did not quite understand her and questioned, Ma'am? She repeated with a softer tone in her voice, You sit down now and rise with the others. I sat down dazed. I saw and heard nothing. When the others were asked to rise, I did not know it. When school was dismissed, I went out in a kind of stupor. A few of the white boys jeered me, saying, "'Oh, you're a nigger, too!' I heard some black children say, "'We know he was colored.' "'Shiny,' said to them, "'Come along, don't tease him,' and thereby won my undying gratitude. I hurried on as fast as I could and had gone some distance before I perceived that redhead was walking by my side. After a while he said to me, "'Let me carry your books.' I gave him my strap without being able to answer. When he got to my gate, he said as he handed me my books, Say, you know my big, great agate? I can't shoot with it anymore. I'm going to bring it to school for you tomorrow. I took my books and ran into the house. As I passed through the hallway, I saw that my mother was busy with one of her customers. I rushed up into my own little room, shut the door and went quickly to where my looking glass hung on the wall. For an instant I was afraid to look, but when I did I looked long and earnestly. I had often heard people say to my mother, what a pretty boy you have. I was accustomed to hear remarks about my beauty, but now, for the first time, I became conscious of it, and recognized it. I noticed The ivory whiteness of my skin, the beauty of my mouth, the size and liquid darkness of my eyes, and how the long black lashes that fringed and shaded them produced an effect that was strangely fascinating even to me. I noticed the softness and glossiness of my dark hair that fell in waves over my temples, making my forehead appear whiter than it really was. How long I stood there gazing at my image, I do not know. When I came out and reached the head of the stairs, I heard the lady who had been with my mother going out. I ran downstairs and rushed to where my mother was sitting with a piece of work in her hands. I buried my head in her lap and blurted out, Mother, mother, tell me, am I a nigger? I could not see her face. But I knew the piece of work dropped to the floor and I felt her hands on my head. I looked up into her face and repeated, Tell me, mother, am I a nigger? There were tears in her eyes and I could see that she was suffering for me. And then it was that I looked at her critically for the first time. I had thought of her in a childish way only as the most beautiful woman in the world. Now I looked at her searching for defects. I could see that her skin was almost brown, that her hair was not so soft as mine, and that she did differ in some way from the other ladies who came to the house. Yet, even so, I could see that she was very beautiful, more beautiful than any of them. She must have felt that I was examining her, for she hid her face in my hair and said with difficulty, No, my darling, you are not a nigger. She went on. You are as good as anybody. If anyone calls you a nigger, don't notice them. But the more she talked, the less was I reassured, and I stopped her by asking, Well, mother, am I white? Are you white? She answered tremblingly, No, I am not white. But you. Your father is one of the greatest men in the country. The best blood of the South is in you. This suddenly opened up in my heart a fresh chasm of misgiving and fear, and I almost fiercely demanded, Who is my father? Where is he? He stroked my hair and said, I'll tell you about him some day." I sobbed. I want to know now. She answered, No, not now. Perhaps it had to be done, but I have never forgiven the woman who did it so cruelly. It may be that she never knew, that she gave me a sword thrust that day in school, which was years in healing. End of chapter, read by Jorge Acosta for Lit to Go, on the web at fcit.usf.edu.